This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Prime Spark, the podcast that brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate, and empower women over 55. The second women's revolution is here, and it is time for us to fuel a spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path, and reflect your gifts in the world. Now, here is your host for Prime Spark, Sarah Hart. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close, with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling, and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. Wow, that's a big mission which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get going now. And today I have the great pleasure of talking with Nancy Klein, a woman whom and whose work I greatly admire. Nancy Klein is the pioneer of the body of thought and practice known as the thinking environment. Her research through teaching, lecturing, and working with colleagues professionals, executives, and teams around the world continues to develop this work. She also is founding director of Time to Think, a global leadership development and coaching company that specializes in the thinking environment. As an acclaimed author, Nancy has written four books on the thinking environment, including the recently published bestseller, the Promise That Changes Everything, I Won't Interrupt You, Penguin Random House, and the 20-year bestseller, Time to Think, Castle. Nancy is visiting faculty at the Henley Center for Coaching. Born and raised in New Mexico, Nancy is also a UK citizen and lives in Oxfordshire with her English husband, Christopher Spence. Welcome, Nancy. I'm so happy you're here today. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It is my pleasure. So just in getting started, let me ask you, do you experience getting older? If so, what is that experience? And if not, why do you think it is that you don't? Well, this question sounds straightforward, but I think, as many of your other guests did, that it is anything but. So I appreciate this opportunity to think about it for a while. And I do experience getting older. And most importantly, I now experience and love getting old. By 76, older is a euphemism. By 76, we get to be old. And I have, since I was 26, wanted to be an old woman one day. I didn't want the oppression that comes with it, but I wanted it. Now, this was due partly to having 
been told at 26 that I would be dead in six weeks, a long story, which you know. But mostly my wanting to be old came from the assumption that I would by then be, by definition, an amazing wellspring of experience and could be of even more use to the world because of it. And that I would get to make connections between and among huge overlapping territories of knowledge that require experience. In fact, the expression experience can have a kind of cliche, non-cache about it. But to me, life experience is more than just accumulated events and learnings and lore. It is a scintillating, rapturous thing. A, a kind of live and blooming universe of offerings. Always moving, always updating and refreshing and expanding. So I feel entirely blessed that all of that gets to be now my moment to moment context. To me, 76 years of experience is more than wonderful. It is wondrous. And only old people get to know that. And if I can just say another thing that, you know, I think that equally, of course, the oppression of old people and old women in particular is completely unwondrous. I mean, even at 60, I began to realize that other people were now seeing a wrinkled face when they looked at me. And I imagined, probably correctly, their silent, darting assumptions about old women. And in that moment about me, for example, when I reached 70, I started feeling self-conscious at the gym, like a sort of allowed other rather than an embraced member. And no one was behaving differently. And they were still very friendly, of course, but I knew they were also seeing me as old, as something they are lifting weights and rowing like maniacs to avoid. <laughs> old at the gym, I think, is a kind of oxymoron, really. But this gym example may sound trivial, I realize, but it is, in my experience, one of hundreds of daily manifestations of this monstrous fact, which is that the group identity of old is in our society, the only identity whose oppression everyone absolutely will experience. Not all people are women and not all people will become black or gay or non-binary or poor or Uyghurs or wage earners, but we all will become old. <clears throat> Unless of course we die first, which has other downsides. And I did want to share with you that my favorite moment of challenging female age-related oppression, which is a lot of women are in denial of, I think, but was in a masterclass I was leading for Cosmopolitan Magazine's female editors, including the chief. And I asked them to get into thinking pairs, I call it, and listen to each other think about the following question for five uninterrupted minutes each. And the question was, 
if you and the world knew that wrinkles are beautiful, what would change for you and the world? Well, they did it, and there was an energetic buzz in the room, all right. And when they came back, many of them said, movingly, I thought, that such a liberating assumption would free them to be themselves, something like that. But then the editor-in-chief said, if I and the world knew that wrinkles are beautiful, Cosmopolitan would go out of business. And I learned on that day that the oppression of older and old women is a highly strategized, calculated, and bottom line supported force in the world. So anyway, I think that although the purpose of all oppression is to deplete and discourage, that we as old women can hold on to our power by being proud, thrilled, in fact, not just to be older, but even to be old. We can honor and love every sign of age. We can become activists. And as I hope you know, Prime Spark actually is for me one very welcome form of age celebrating activism. And I just want to say, try to put into words what I feel now in being alive. I, I feel with each year of life, more in awe of, more rapturously grateful for every minute of thinking and loving and working and playing and musing and challenging and in all kinds of ways, singing. Thank you. I think that's what I wanted to say. Appreciate it. Well, that's all lovely. Thank you so much. And thank you for your um, continued support of Prime Spark. Mm. Uh, I want to just come back to one thing you said. I want to come back to about 25 things you said, but one thing in particular I'm, I'm, I keep thinking about. When you mentioned how you felt uh, going into the gym when you were 70, to what extent do you think that was quote, real, or to what extent was it your, and it would be true for all of, all of us old women, your internalized feelings about being old that you thought you saw in their faces? You know, that's a fair question. And I would guess that it's an inextricable sort of combination. Um, I think what I do think, though, that matters so much here is that people of all ages are still, at least in our, generally these cultures we live in, not so much in native cultures, actually, in my, in my experience, but that we are all, as it were, indoctrinated to see old as being bad and frail and maybe in our society, even potentially a burden, but as being sort of not beautiful, not wonderful to behold. And that's reinforced in media, of course, uh, terribly. And even on Zoom, you know, you can take the wrinkles out of your face, uh, which, you know, I'm ashamed to say I have done. And I look so much 
more like you're supposed to look uh, if you want to be nice looking uh, that I pretty much figure when I get back to teaching in person, people are going to think that I aged about 25 years, but I, I, I actually do think that it's very likely the people as I got older, were seeing me as old and along with it trots this set of assumptions. Um, maybe if I didn't have internalized, if I hadn't internalized all that myself, I, I don't think it would have changed how they look at me, but it would have changed whether I cared about that. So my still, I hope I have another 10, certainly six, hopefully 10, maybe 20 years left um, to live. I'd love to get to where I don't care about that. But it, and it helps to, to, to talk with you and others about it like this. Yeah. Yeah, I, it helps. It helps. I think it helps all of us for our, who are willing to talk about it. There's um, just in, in terms of, of how we feel about um, getting older and wrinkles and stuff. There is a wonderful new book that you may know about called Breaking the Age Code mm -hmm. by Becca Levy. And she has some um, really hardcore research that she's done that shows that our attitude toward aging and our getting older can affect our overall health and our longevity by as much as seven years. Wow. So this is no small thing to really get in touch with. How do I feel about getting older? Because it will have... I mean, if somebody's ready to die, it's okay with me if they die, you know, but for all of us who aren't ready to die yet, then we can really affect our overall health and our longevity. So I invite everybody to really get in touch with how you feel about getting older. And I love what you said, Nancy, about the amazing amount of money there is in making us scared of getting older and doing everything possible to look younger. Yeah. It's a huge industry. Listen, um, uh, let's turn to your wonderful work. Um, and you've mentioned it a couple times um, when you were speaking just now. Um, and it's called the thinking environment. So for anyone who doesn't know, what is a thinking environment? Thank you. It's best summarized, I think, as the optimal conditions for thinking for yourself. I set out um, many, many years ago and focused entirely on this question by 1985, which was how can we help people to think for themselves um, with rigor, you know, and with courage, with grace, imagination, how can we help each other to do that? Because it was increasingly my observation that the quality of everything we do, everything we do, even relationships, depends on the quality of the thinking we do first. And by thinking, I also mean a level of intelligent feeling and so on. Um, and that if, it, if everything we do depends on the quality of thinking we do first, um, what does the quality of our thinking depend on? I wondered. 
And I began to notice satisfactorily enough that the quality of our own thinking, our independent thinking seems to depend on how people are treating us while we're thinking. That was a surprise, Sarah, because um, I figured it would have something to do with a combination, a fairly subtle combination of education, experience, um, IQ, even maybe uh, accumulated knowledge. Um, and it just didn't seem to, after quite a few years of quite a few people, um, I began to face the fact that we seem to get smarter if while we're thinking people are treating us in a certain way. And over again, some years, I and colleagues, and including you, began to notice that though there are hundreds of behaviors that help, that kind of enhance thinking in people, um, there really were 10 that we could settle on. So a thinking environment really then is those 10 behaviors or those 10 ways of being, I think is a better way to put it, um, with each other that keep us thinking for ourselves. So that when we get into groups, if they're also operating in what we call thinking environment, those groups can think better together. This is not an individualistic thing. This is a recognition that, that our collective experience is produced by individuals in the collective. And so our individual independent thinking helps the group to become smarter too. That, that would be a start, I think. Thank you. That reminds me, um, uh, I, as, as you know, I do the thinking environment work. Thank you so much for that contribution to the world. Um, and one of the funniest things I think a student said to me once was, can I do this with my refrigerator? <laughs> I, had, I had people ask me if they could do it with their dog or with their cat, but I've never had anybody ask me if they could do it with their refrigerator. And I said, well, um, it's probably better than not doing it at all, but um, it, it's not an ideal situation. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. Oh, that's wonderful. I just have to say, um, you know, you could argue that that you can be absolutely sure that refrigerator is not going to interrupt you, which is the biggest death independent thought. And that it does kind of sit there with a, you know, if you're not, if it's not open and you've got the little fan heat thing going on underneath, it's, it's a kind of nice warm experience, but there would be limited attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, it would it would not be that the refrigerator's attention had wandered. I mean, it would just <laughs> right. Well, I hope not. Oh, so I I love the thinking environment work, um, and I'm curious about what you think the major contribution it could make in our world today. Well, I think. And I know and I'm fine with the fact that this is going to take a long time, way past any year I would live to. Um, but I think that because it, our world depends on humanly grounded, intelligently emotional um, 
interconnected um, human decisions. And those decisions depend on the quality of thinking that gets done before the decisions. And that quality of thinking has to be produced optimally by people thinking for themselves and not out of compliance or of uh, the need to belong and so on. Because of all of that, if each organization or collecting together of people could become literate in these ways of being together, could first of all, grow a deep interest in what people really think and grow expertise in helping them to figure that out. Um, I think that we would then convene in our society with the potential for ideas that just cannot emerge if the environment for thinking is not there. And I would argue that just about everything that is anything from problematic to monstrous in our world right now is a function of conformist thinking and ideas and decisions that came from that. So I, I feel very sort of committed to the potential of, of independent thinking conditions to make changes at the root where we need it done. And <laughs> it's a tricky deal because the world punishes independent thinking. So, but I, I am, I'm entirely hopeful and confident about it. And as I said, when I started this reply, I, I'm fine for it to take a long time. I've never wanted, as it were, the thinking environment work to grow big in order to be big. I just want us to keep discovering answers to the question, how do we help each other to think for ourselves? And if it takes a long time, maybe even a century, it will have been worth it. <laughs> there are days, though, as you can imagine, when I think that if some of the current um, maniacs in charge of the world have their way, all of us that love the thought of independent thought will be murdered. But maybe this is, <laughs> I don't go there too often, but it's not, a, it, it's not great is it, at, the, at that meta level of leadership right now. Is there any way of, oh, I don't know how to ask this question. Is there any way of approaching people who don't want others to think for themselves? Or do we just say life is too short and we'll go where we can make it work? Uh, yes, uh, strategy. Um, I... I think about that a lot. And it was my, always my strategy and still is. And, uh, and so therefore uh, finding that it's working, I would 
I would advocate for it to go where I already have influence, where I have credibility um, to, you know, one can establish um, increasing circles of influence through publication. So my books have helped uh, my own experience of, of, of having uh, entree into places. But we can all write and we can all publish. And, and now thanks to the internet, we really, really can do that. So I, I think that it will not, the thinking environment, the idea of asking someone A, to think for themselves and B, to want others to do it and C, to help others to do it is so countercultural and so counter organizational cultures that it requires astonishing levels of psychological safety to say yes to. And I think that we feel safe with people whom we trust, who have credibility before we start with them. And so I have never sought out the big influencers, but it has been my experience that sometimes I get an opportunity with a pretty big influencer but it was because I already had been working with people whom they trusted. Is that what you meant? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's, um, it's not, it's, it's totally understandable. I, I would like to have a path to people who don't want us to think for ourselves, but I think that's being really idealistic and what you said, I think is much more, realistic and possible. Um, and I'm thinking, Nancy, you said that the, the thinking environment work is so countercultural. It is so opposite from what we do most of the time. Is that, in your opinion, is that the basis for why it's so difficult to produce? Yeah, I think so. I think that this process, you know, although there are some pretty deliciously complex, intricate things when we get down into the weeds of how to do a thinking session, uh, which uh, I adore. Uh, for the most part, though, the thinking environment processes are elegant. They're straightforward. Uh, they are not what makes it difficult for um, people and organizations to do them. I think it is exactly the injunction that we not think for ourselves. And, you know, Sarah, this happens from the time we're born. And, and, and it's tricky because children, babies and toddlers and children and even teenagers, of course, need the input of the adults and others around them. They need to amass some knowledge, their own experience and so on before their independent thinking can become um, universally useful. Um, but the trouble is that every institution continues, and all our schooling does, right? And, and all of our work experience continues to reward samey thinking, repetitive thinking, derivative thinking, compliant thinking. Um, even at the very top levels, and sometimes most of all at the top levels of organizations, uh, people sometimes can increase their status and salary by not thinking for themselves. So I would say that 
it is a misunderstanding of the value of independent thought. I think that most of the people that are running organizations that don't want independent thought and who create these cultures and therefore make the thinking environment very difficult. Um, I think that they think that if you ask somebody what they think, you're going to have to do what they said. Or I remember one man said, well, yeah, I could ask people what they think, but then what would I do? And it sounded a little flippant, but the man was terrified of the thought of, of doing what helps produce good thinking in groups, which is everybody gets a turn in around uh, to be listened to with interest and in where they'll go next in their thinking. How simple is that? But he was completely terrified of that, that he would lose his power, his status, his position, his positional power was there, but he would basically lose his control over the outcome. So it is, generally speaking, in my experience, it is the pioneering, fairly visionary, very human-based leaders, and there are, are many, um, who will take this on and make and shape the culture. I, I worked most recently with um, a very large finance company, and that visionary chief executive wanted everybody to know how to create a thinking environment. And he wanted the major sort of cultural impulse to be independent thinking and the conditions for it. Well, that's inspiring, isn't it? Yeah. It takes that kind of, it takes that kind of leader though, doesn't it? And I think, yeah. That reminds me uh, quickly of a, of a top leader in a company that I was working with several years ago now, and he was surrounded by some of the best scientists in the world and as I talked to him, I was getting more and more uncomfortable. And finally, I said to him, well, do you think you always know the best answer to a, a problem? And he thought about it and said, yes. <laughs> and I, <laughs> at that point, I really just wanted to turn around, pack my bag and go home because <laughs> I thought, okay, then, you know, um, <laughs> this is not going to work here. This is just a waste of time. <laughs> Wow. So Nancy, tell me, because this is so, it's, it's all so exciting. Um, and in the last minutes we have, what, what's your vision? You talked about that a bit, about how long it could take and so forth, but what, what are your next steps? Oh, that's a nice question. Well, I'll do the, ver the vision first, which I see is a little bit different, just because I love my so-called vision, uh, which is that one day, everyone will live in a thinking environment from birth to death. So that makes me smile when I think about that. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, my next step, Sarah, I am just loving my next steps, my current and next steps. Um, in that, I think that, you know, there is this, well, I've experienced that as I get older, I feel I have more privilege to choose. Um, there's a sort of, I've earned every wrinkle and I've earned my choices. And I knew that there would come a point when what I wanted to do was produce more writing and clarify more fine points in these conditions for thinking. Um, 
than I could when I was teaching so much and speaking so much and being gone a lot and so on. And I don't know, I don't know when I thought I was going to stop doing that and start doing this new level of, uh, of work. Uh, but then COVID hit and Christopher and I uh, just, we closed the doors and actually we have still not gotten out very much at all. We're just <laughs> waiting until the fourth year, I think. Um, and we're getting older as we do this. But what happened with that was that I had, I, as it happened, I could have kept up the pace um, through Zoom, but I think I would have died from Zoom if I'd done that. And so also, you know, this isn't the place to have 35 to 150 people in your living room. So I just had to stop doing all that. And COVID was a good excuse. And then it became an opportunity and then it became a blessing this time. So what's next for me is consolidating my commitment to this change, uh, not, not to staying home necessarily, but to focusing in now, getting more writing done on the fine points of the thinking environment, continuing to do what you might call research. Uh, I have a very select group of clients and I have um, a, a select students that are on the cutting edge, including with a woman who's an expert in neurodivergence. And I'm very interested. That's another next thing for me is will the thinking environment as we experience it have to change in order to accommodate neurodivergence. Um, so that's that. And then the other thing, Sarah, which I've been, you know, I've always said to you, or for many years, I've said, look, I have the deepest respect for Zen and Buddhism, but you are doing it for me in this lifetime. And I've got to have another life if I'm ever going to be able to be like that. So, but I have decided that I would before I die, in addition to all this beautiful work and writing and loving being home with Christopher and everything, I would like to become a serene person. So I'll let you know if I'm making progress on that. Wonderful. <laughs> it's you. wonderful. I love the observation that um, I, I think this is, is what you're saying. If I'm misstating, please say so. <clears throat> that it is... You may come to a, <clears throat> any of us may come to a point in our lives when we realize we can make potentially a larger impact through our writing than through our speaking or teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really, I think that's really an interesting thing. I suspect for many people listening to think about. So thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, Nancy, this is wonderful. If if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Thank you. Um, well, I think the best way to get in touch with me, that is to say, yes, if you know, so that we're in some communication two ways, would be through the Time to Think website, which has a wonderful domain name, just time to think.com. Um but also, I now have an author website, uh, nancykline.com. And although it can't be two-way, it, it is a way um, for me to share what I'm thinking. This is all mostly philosophical, um, not necessarily work-related writing that's on there. 
So people could uh, find out a lot about what you're doing on your nancycline.com website. Um, but if they want to get in touch with you, they should use timetothink.com. Is that right? That would be right. And in, in, in terms of what I'm doing, it would be more of what I'm writing and thinking. That would be the right. nancycline.com. Yes, that's good. Thank you. Yep. Okay, so that's our time today. Please join us again. You can find our Prime Spark podcasts on every popular outlet. Find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Nancy Klein. And don't forget, you can find her at timetothink.com or Nancy Klein. That's K-L-I-N-E, Klein.com. Thank you for being with us. Take care, spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Prime Spark. With each episode, Sarah Hart brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate, and empower women over 55. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes about remarkable, experienced women, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available at Spotify, Apple Podcast, and most other major podcast sites. The second women's revolution is here, and we hope that you use the insights you've gained here to fuel the spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path, and reflect your gifts in the world. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.